Good evening, and welcome to what I think is the tenth series of lectures of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, which was founded in November of 1976. And those of you who are alert are already quailing at the thought of what I will do to you in November come a year, I'm sure. But relax, you have another year of peace ahead of you. The Friends of the Book Arts Press have by now, I think, all received, if they haven't, please let me know, the schedule of lectures for the 1985-1986 first semester. The next lecture in the series is on Monday, the 28th of October. Our very old friend John Dreyfus will be speaking to the text that he wrote at the behest of the Roxborough Club and Mr. Erdman on 18th century French typography with particular reference to fleurons and printer's ornaments. The title of the lecture, The Flowering of Typography, The Development of Printer's Flowers with Special Reference to the French Rococo. That's on Monday, the 28th of October at 6 p.m., uh, either in this room or in these parts. Our lecturer this evening is Lance Heidi, and he as is, I think, often the case here, somebody who happily needs no introduction whatsoever, Mr. Lance Heidi. Thank you very much. I'm going to start off with a personal note to give you some perspective about how I came to the subject I'll be talking about tonight, which uh, I'm going to take you slumming into the world, not of books, but of... Uh, shiny paper magazines, advertising flyers, uh, cartoon strips, and all of the very lowest classes of art that appear in the print media. Now, I, I haven't always been affected with an interest in this area. I was uh, in college uh, doing my best to imitate the uh, works of Leonard Baskin's Gehenna Press and learn how to do wood engraving and illustrated books with etchings that I did on copper plates and moisten the paper before printing and handset all my type, etc., etc., and read everything I could find written by Stanley Morrison and Bruce Rogers and Daniel Berkeley Updike and William Addison Dwiggins and so on, and worked as a book designer uh, both for private press books and for a much longer period of time for uh, trade books specializing in the design of photography books. About seven years ago, I resumed what had been my chief ambition as a young man, which was to make pictures. And I started making pictures in the form of posters, which drew upon my love of letter forms and also my preference for the more practical sides of artistic expression, where you're trying to communicate a message to an audience. And as I made this move away from book design into poster design, I started paying more attention than I had previously to the work being done by the other artists who were working in the field of the mass media. And I became really impressed. I, I saw that with many of these artists who, whose work appears in the least expensive forms, uh, had an attitude often toward their work similar to that uh, to, say, the people who painted murals during the Renaissance. You know, in the Renaissance, there were no 
magazines. If you wanted, if you were an artist who wanted to reach a mass market, and didn't feel that it was beneath you to work on commission for a large and powerful organization, the mass media in those days was waterproof outdoor sculpture made out of bronze, or else giant Bible illustrations which were painted into the plaster on the walls of churches. That was their equivalent of the magazines which we have now in order to reach a broad audience and an audience who might not be literate. In the last 20 years, printing has undergone an extraordinary refinement in the field of offset lithography. It's been the only bright side uh, to compensate for the loss of letterpress. I, just, I also want to comment that uh, I have a highest admiration for the letterpress crusade, which has been carried on predominantly by librarians, but with the help of printers and others who love the, the craft of letterpress. And, and Dean Ballinger has not, has not slacked at all. I mean, in Boston at the Society of Printers, many of the speakers who have come to talk about the history of letterpress printing and the other aspects of the book arts from overseas uh, were brought here on lecture tours by Terry Ballinger. So I was aware of what this, these offices were, were doing a long time ago. But now I, I think that uh, there is a, a second, a crusade isn't exactly the right word, but a new development that's happening to reevaluate the role that the more popular forms of the print media might have, and I mean forms other than books. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. I'll turn off the lights and I'll try and get these machines going. Okay. Well, the title of this lecture is An Artist in Search of an Historian. Now, there really is no shortage of art historians. Uh, every university has courses in art history, and uh, there are magazines of art history, and, and critics who are trying to anticipate the, uh, the work of art historians of the future by evaluating what's going on at present in the world of art. However, there is a definite bias in favor of the artwork which has the largest amounts of money associated with it. The New Yorker cartoon on the left by Stevenson has the caption, a million five is the sticker price. And a lot of the art that we see in the, uh, in the art magazines and in the most important galleries and museums is not what you would call public communication, uh, the often Often it ends up uh, decorating the walls of expensive architecture, frequently uh, kept out of view of, uh, of, the, of the public. The artwork I'm talking about is the, uh, the cheap penny prints or 50 cent or dollar magazines. And there have been historians of uh, the graphic arts uh, in the outside of the book field, and one of the, the people who I consider to be the best writer on, uh, on the subject is Hyatt Mayer, whose book, Prince and People, 
is one of those books which if I could only take uh, ten books to a desert island, this would be one of them. He was interested in any kind of picture or ornamentation that was printed in ink on paper, including his, uh, not only talking about Rembrandt and Dürer and Holbein and the giants, but also talking about the the people who did the first advertising cards and some of the more humble forms of visual communication. And on the right is a picture by Folon, Jean-Michel Folon, the great French graphic artist, symbolizing uh, in his own visual language the, uh, the essence of what we're talking about, communication, which is to, which comes from the Latin word communicare, which means to make common. Uh, the printing press, by duplicating the image, makes it common, makes it inexpensive, makes it uninteresting to those who invest in art for its fi financial uh, return, but of great interest to those of us who are interested in what communication or message the art may hold. The importance of these lower forms of graphic art sometimes is debated. The, the comic strip is often considered to be the lowest form of art. But you have to think about it again when you read an article in the newspaper. As this uh, article in the Boston Globe uh, indicated that the United States Agency for International Development, better known as AID, spent $240,000 developing a campaign which included this comic book which was distributed in El Salvador prior to the elections to encourage the people to get out and vote and to educate them in the meaning American version of democratic voting. When the United States government is investing in an art form to that degree to influence international politics, this is not necessarily anymore the lowest form of art. Gary Trudeau, the artist on the right, who graduated from Yale in 1970, and in 1973 got a graduate degree in graphic design from Yale, and in 1976 was given an honorary doctorate of humane letters by his alma mater, is well known as an outspoken, uh, serious practitioner of the form of the political comic strip. And when a university like Yale chooses to give an honorary degree to a comic strip artist, again, we need to reevaluate this form. <clears throat> on the left is a the two panels from a Spider-Man um, Marvel comic uh, special tabloid, a four-pager that was inserted into the Boston Globe and many other papers across the United States, titled "Secrets." Uh, was it was put together by the National Committee for the Prevention of Child Abuse. It was funded by the MacArthur Foundation, and it was endorsed by the National Education Association, and it was an effort to teach children about uh, the ways of avoiding and the ways of dealing with the problems of, uh, of, of sexual abuse. Another way that uh, a comic book was used to uh, educate people was uh, this one on the right, which tells a woman how to cope with the problems raised by her pregnancy, uh, telling the father and dealing with other prenatal concerns of diet and so on, the visit to the doctor, etc. <clears throat> Oops. 
communicating through pictures is the earliest form of written communication. It's preceded the phonetic alphabet in the form of pictographs, as you see in the examples on the left, some post-Paleolithic stone drawings from Spain and France. The pictograph has never gone out of fashion. It has continued to survive in all places and all times, uh, as a, including our roadsides, as you see on the right, and uh, the pictographs that accompany the different sports events at the Olympics are also very well known. They have the advantage of, of uh, transcending language barriers. In the past, the, one of the criteria for a good pictograph was that it had to be easy to write, just like uh, we need to have alphabet characters, phonetic symbols, which are easy to write, and the ones on the left uh, qualify. But today, because of the mass production possible through printing presses, it no longer is required that our pictographs or our pictorial symbols have that simple, easily written quality. They can be much more complicated. On the left is a Chinese ideogram uh, representing a mother and child, which has this quality of being easy to write. But on the right is a poster by myself of the same subject, which did not need to be easy to draw. It wasn't easy to draw. It took weeks to uh, come up with the artwork on this. But it was uh, able to be printed and mass-produced really quite easily by silkscreen. Still carrying the same message as the ideogram on the left, but using the additional power of color and uh, more detail. Many modern uses of pictographs try to capture that easy to make quality, such as this paper cut by Paul Rand on the left of the skull and the olive branch using two of the most ancient ideograms which are understood all over the world. On the right is a copy made from a pre-Christian stone scratching in the Vatican Museum showing one of the early uses of uh, the symbols of the ark, the dove, and the olive branch which when I saw interested me and I decided to rework them and improve the lettering a little bit but basically using the same design, came up with this watercolor on the left. And there is a, uh, a kind of, of grammar and uh, uh, a language of dealing with pictographs that you can't mess around with lightly. And I thought I would invent my own pictogram for the water underneath the boat. And was pointed out to me later on that I had combine the UPC with the ARC, and people were wondering what, what that was supposed to mean. <laughs> so uh, when you're dealing with pictorial symbols, it is true that they have the power to transcend language barriers and to survive the ages, but they also often have ambiguous meanings, which uh, is part of the artist's job to be aware of. But sometimes artists can get away with murder. And a lot of people didn't understand how Jackson Pollock managed to get away with it. And on the, uh, on the left is one of my favorite Norman Rockwell paintings of the uh, puzzled middle-class man faced with modern art. And on the right, a photograph by a New York photographer, Benno Friedman, uh, titled Jackson Pollock's Mother, 
showing <laughs> showing a popular <laughs> explanation of the meaning of Pollock's word. Some uh, some ideograms have local meanings which need to be explained if you go outside a certain geographical area. In New Hampshire, everybody knows this great stone face in the granite cliffs and Franconia Notch. It is the state symbol of New Hampshire. It is on all the state stationery. It is on all the highway si state highway signs. The decal on the right is from the door of one of, of a state vehicle. It is used for neon signs, motels. And on the right, I used the stone profile for a poster I did for a local summer repertory theater in Whitefield, New Hampshire. And I found that whenever I show this poster outside of New England, I have to have a paragraph of explanation for people who don't know what that strange black shape is. Another one of the problems of dealing with um, symbols or ideograms. The perhaps most fascinating dimension of symbols is the connections they have with our unconscious. It's been one of the discoveries of the 20th century that uh, symbols have archetypical meanings. They occur in people's dreams through the ages and uh, often have the same meaning. Many symbols uh, appear in many different cultures uh, with the same meaning I think that the job of learning how to use the power that these symbols have and connecting with our unconscious is one of the things which uh, separates the greatest communicating artists from those who, uh, who have lesser power. On the right is a poster by Tadanor Yoko, a great Japanese graphic artist, who, whose main style for years was picking symbols, particularly religious symbols. He was a devout Buddhist. Uh, picking symbols from different religions, in this case Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and Christianity, and as in many of his other posters, combining these symbols in uh, interesting ways that had meaning for him. Oops, sorry. One of the uh, <clears throat> common and unmistakable symbols is the sun, the rising sun. Here's another poster by Yoko on the left called The Birth of Buddha, which was done for the opening of a new Buddhist temple, which was dedicated to mothers and their children. So he used the, the baby Buddha in the center of the rising sun just above the horizon and his mother in the nighttime sky looking down from above, a symbol which needs no translating. And on the right is a poster I did for a documentary film that was made about the literacy crusade in Nicaragua, where the people viewed literacy as the rising sun, which would make them free, which would make it possible for them to vote and to govern themselves for the first time. I'm going to show a number of slides where the earth is used as a symbol or an ideogram, sometimes representing itself, sometimes representing another idea, such as the earth representing wisdom. Uh, on the left, again, Norman Rockwell, just a, a visual paraphrase of the song title, Sitting on Top of the World. And perhaps 
One of the most significant graphic uh, events of the 20th century were the first photographs made of the Earth from outer space. Marvel Comics, uh, no, it was Captain Marvel on the left with Earth as a symbol of male wisdom. And on the right, uh, on Ms. Magazine in a wholly new context. From a, uh, a punk poster on the left, a woman about to put the earth into a microwave oven. And on the right, a woman treating it as a precious object, preserving to uh, hand to her child from a poster that I did, another version of the, uh, the poster I did for Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament. A Jehovah's Witness uh, cover on the left, and on the right, a page for a panel from a French uh, comic strip by Drouet. A poster by George Sumner for the uh, Marine World Research Foundation. And on the back of a sugar crisp uh, box on the right, where the Earth becomes the mystery ball. A, an anti nuclear energy comic book on the left, and on the right a poster by David Lance Goines, the great poster artist of Berkeley, California, where the earth becomes a big apple. Goines is one of the masters of using uh, pictorial symbols in interesting ways. On the left, the rose becomes a noose. And on the right, he again uses the flower. And this time, it was a poster he did for the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima for an exhibition that was held in that city in August, this past August. The Japanese characters, he told me, read no war. And the, uh, the helmet has been turned into a flower pot, and the sword has been turned into a garden spade. And the hacked and butchered rose is blooming. On the left is a 1911 Nickelodeon slide to accompany a song called Pots and Pans. And on the right is a photograph that appeared in 1982 in Ms. Magazine. <clears throat> a symbol that I think may be of special interest to uh, people who use libraries is the lion, which is often uh, accompanies uh, library architecture not just the New York Public Library's famous lions. On the right is uh, the lion, one of the two lions, which is part of Louis St. Gaudens' Civil War Memorial inside the Boston Public Library. And on the left is the Rembrandt print, one of the many prints made over the centuries by artists showing St. Jerome with the uh, ever-present symbols of the book, the skull, and the, the lion. <clears throat> now, the most literal meaning of the lion's association with a building like a library is the guardian. You know, it's, the, it's a sign that there's something precious inside this building which is being guarded and protected. But I think that there are other meanings which really give the symbol its ultimate power, that the power of learning is comparable to the power of the king of beasts. The lion symbolizes the ultimate power in the animal kingdom and the power that comes from uh, an old man sitting with a book and writing the history uh, is comparable to the power of the lion and it also gives him the power to tame the lion. The uh, women's movement has had a lot of interesting 
symbols associated with it besides the, the pots and pans and buckets that I showed earlier. On the left is an illustration that appeared in Playboy magazine by Edith Vonnegut on a, for an article about the freedom of the press where the apple has turned into a book. And on the right is a, is a uh, sketch that I made of uh, the interior of the Sterling Memorial Library at Yale with a woman instead of uh, the man traditionally associated with uh, once all-male school. <clears throat> the importance of uh, education to uh, the women's movement, which has occurred over this, you know, over the decades, uh, is something that has interested me, and I've made quite a few posters showing women or girls and books. On the left is uh, one I did uh, of my wife reading a book, and on the right is my daughter reading a book. Again, my wife and daughter on the left, and uh, our neighbor, Mrs. Boyd, and my daughter on the right, a recent poster for Black Oak Books, a wonderful new bookstore out in Berkeley, California. The importance of showing new kinds of relationships or roles for men and women in the popular media is something which people have been awakening to recently. As a sign of that has been the, uh, the no comment page that used to appear or that does appear in the back of Ms. Magazine sometimes where they would depict advertisements which showed women in traditional or in offensive roles. Uh, and recently they started showing uh, a variation called One Step Forward, uh, advertising which depicted women in roles which the magazine viewed as positive changes. And for my own part, I've, I've been concerned about some of the stereotyping that has appeared for men in the mass media. And uh, this poster I did for the Children's Memorial Hospital is a, an attempt on my part to show a, a man intimately involved with his son. The study of uh, gender models in, in the popular media is an area of study which is just beginning to gain momentum. It hasn't achieved widespread uh, establishment in universities, but a number of books and uh, speaking tours have resulted this one, uh, Gender Advertisements by Irving Goffman, has a lot of black and white reproductions of, of advertisements which are organized by gesture, showing men and women in particular uh, gestures which r reveal their, their rank with each other. And in this case, the, the man is shown being incapable of dealing with the women's role of uh, diapering a baby or uh, in the kitchen at the stove, he has a very casual attitude, as though he really doesn't belong there. <clears throat> the uh, movement which has begun to establish academic study for the history of graphic design has been indicated by uh, the work of... Um, Philip Meggs on the left, A History of Graphic Design, is a publication he did. 
And the second symposium on the history of graphic design, which was held at Rochester this past April. These are, again, an effort to try and give, for the first time, academic credibility to areas which have considered to be outside the legitimate study in the history of art. I have heard some academicians criticize this symposium and this book and the work of some of the people who have been involved. I'm not saying that they're not above criticism, but I think the fact that people have gotten the ball rolling by trying to create a book which can be used as a textbook in the history of graphic design, which includes illustration and poster design and so on, and to create a new academic discipline in studying the history of graphic communication is something to keep an eye on, and it's something that inevitably is going to start touching some of the bigger uh, universities in the near future. A year from now, Yale University is going to be having a small one-day symposium on the subject of uh, whether the history of graphic communication uh, has a place in universities. Meanwhile, the, uh, a lot of the legwork and the compiling of information has been done by librarians. On the left is an example of the uh, wonderful book, the artist in the book, produced by the uh, Houghton Library, the Department of Printing and Graphic Arts there, Eleanor Garvey and the late Philip Hofer. And on the right, some books that uh, another Boston librarian, Sinclair Hitchings, was involved in, along with some other institutions, uh, documenting uh, the, the history of the poster. There is a tradition among librarians in appreciating pictorial communication in forms other than the book. And that is why I've, I felt that it was appropriate to bring in magazines and advertising into a library such as this. The series of books produced by the Morgan Library, uh, many of them by Gordon Ray, such as the art of the French illustrated book on the left, are one of the most valuable reference tools that I have in my own library. For the uh, field of, of illustration, color illustration in magazines and other commercial media, the sifting has not been really done yet. The way to find out about what's happening at present is to survey publications such as print magazine, communication arts, both of which have important annuals for illustration and books such as the American Illustration Volume Above and the annual uh, book produced by the Society of Illustrators in New York. The complaint I have about these publications is that they are produced basically by the artists and the art directors themselves, and there is a heavy slant toward recognizing that work which has found, already has found commercial success the job that remains to be done, and this is where I think librarians and academicians need to step in, is to bring a more objective viewpoint to look beyond the signs of commercial success for those artists who have managed to survive in a very difficult world to make a living in, believe me, and still retain their own voice to do work that is original, where they have influenced other artists and gained the respect of their peers and found a large audience. <clears throat> An example of the kind of illustrator I'm talking about who is deserving 
of the sort of treatment, say, that we give to, uh, and I mean this compliment sincerely, to, uh, to artists like Daumier, is uh, Brad Holland, who lives here in the city. <clears throat> I think he's, uh, he's one of the giants of contemporary American illustration. He's very prolific. Not everything he does is a masterpiece, but that was true of Daumier also. You might recognize the poster image he did on the right for the American Book Awards poster a few years back. On the left is an illustration he did for an article called Stress and the Black Executive, showing the problem that the black executives had in not being able to rise beyond a certain level. And on the right, a, uh, an illustration for an article about crime in the courts. The respect that illustrators like Holland are given by art directors, the people who hire them, the art director is the illustrator's equivalent of the editor. His role is to the illustrator what the editor's role is to the writer. It can be uh, exemplified by the reaction that the editor of the op-ed page in the New York Times had when he first was given a box of black pen and ink drawings by Brad Holland. They had not been done for any particular editorials, but they were dealing in, in symbols that re related to contemporary issues, such as disarmament. The editor started handing these drawings out to some of the op-ed editorial writers and asked them to use their words to illustrate Holland's drawings, a reversal of the old role. <clears throat> right now I'm going to do a quick, uh, I'm just going to show you a lot of uh, slides I have taken from the pages of some of the illustration annuals a little while ago, just to give you a taste of the quality that is there. These are not all from the pages of national magazines. Some of them were commissioned by small corporate publications. Uh, sometimes they were small printings. Sometimes they were regional magazines. And in these illustration annuals, uh, there is important information given, such as who the art director was uh, and the address of the artist. I'm not going to give you the names of the artists and the art directors and the publications. I'm just going to let you feast your eyes for a minute. These are artists whose work you will never see in the pages of the big art magazines, nor will you see their work in the big art galleries. They're communication artists. Their work is considered without value because it appears on the cheap pages of magazines. I'm going to look for a minute now at some of the avant-garde work that's being done in the comic strip. I spoke earlier about the social importance that has been given to the comic strip. Now I'm going to look at the artistic innovations that have been made in this form. Again, suggesting that this is the sort of thing which ought to be uh, preserved. These artists ought to be contacted. We ought to find out where their work is appearing and try and find the best of it to preserve and uh, show to a larger audience. <clears throat> the one on the left is from the pages of Raw, which is a, is a kind of alternative comic strip magazine published in New York out of the School of Visual Arts. And on the right, one by a man named Garcia from the pages of a magazine I suppose many of you have never looked at called Heavy Metal, which usually is a very objectionable uh, magazine, but once in a while they, they uh, reach out and uh, bring in something of artistic excellence. This is the work of uh, Drew A, who has a comic strip called Lone Sloan, which is uh, the category known as space opera but artistically, he's one of the geniuses of the comic strip for his innovations and use of color and uh, new ways of composing the page. 
Here is the comic strip adapted to photographic means and used to illustrate a novel uh, produced in Japan under the patronage of the Parco Company, a big department store in Japan. And an autobiographical comic strip produced by Art Spiegelman, uh, appearing in Raw. He teaches at, or I believe he still teaches at the School of Visual Arts. It's a story of his family's uh, trials under the Nazis and their escape. One of this, the signs, again, besides the, uh, the movement to teach the history of graphic design in universities, is the appearance of a few periodicals, such as Fine Print, which needs no introduction to most of you, published out of San Francisco by Sandra Kirschenbaum, and this one, which might be less familiar to you, Target, which is published in Pennsylvania, which has a very similar function to Fine Print, but focuses entirely upon the field of political, editorial, cartooning, and caricature. A sample table of contents on the right, uh, a historical piece about uh, the cartoonists for the South in the 19th, for during the Civil War, uh, an interview by Stephen Heller, one of the champions of modern illustrators who is the art director at the New York Times Book Review, uh, an interview with, uh, with Osborne, Mike Peters interviewed talking about caricature, a review of books dealing uh, mostly anthologies of cartoons, uh, portfolios, and uh, also uh, reports on what's happening in political cartooning in other parts of the world. sample pages from, uh, from this magazine. Osborne, it points out on the left, was the first artist to use the, uh, the mushroom cloud right after the, uh, the, the bombing of Hiroshima. They reproduced that, uh, that drawing on the left with his skull. <coughs> More pages from uh, Target. On the right is a sample of a cartoon by Ed Stein where he wanted to make a comment about the famine in Ethiopia. He was having trouble because he couldn't find anything funny about it. So he did this cartoon offering to sell original drawings from past cartoons and donate the proceeds to uh, a fund to, uh, to help the Ethiopian cause. He was selling them for $75 a piece and raised many thousands of dollars as a result. I've sometimes wondered whether illustrators in the United States might suffer the same fate that the, their counterparts in Japan in the 18th and 19th centuries faced. Like the contemporary magazine illustrators and advertising illustrators, the Yukioi woodblock printer, printmakers, the artists in Japan were considered not to be worthy of collecting. They were considered to be a debased form of art. Uh, the dealers and collectors of fine art in Japan regarded them very much in the same light that we look upon the advertisements in the pages of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. And in fact, the subject matter is very similar. The subject matter of these beautiful Japanese prints, which as many of us know, had a pivotal effect in stimulating the uh, impressionist and post-impressionist movements and the printmaking and poster movement in, in Europe in the 1890s. The subject matter was uh, 
clothing fashions, hair fashions, tourist spots, uh, theatrical idols, uh, sex symbols, uh, figures from popular history and literature. They were the, it was the art form for what uh, Hillier, the great historian of the Japanese print, called the literate commoner, uh, <clears throat> the merchant class who were trying to rise up in the world, and this was the art that attracted them, very much as the art that we see in magazines could be called the art of uh, literate commoners in the United States, definitely not the art of the higher classes. <clears throat> but there is a power. The fact that these pieces are very inexpensive is part of the power, that, that they also deal in a vernacular imagery that speaks outside of political boundaries, outside of language boundaries, is another part of the power. The piece on the left is a drawing, a woodcut by Hokusai from his manga, which was one of the most widely printed and disseminated books produced in Japan. It made its way and attracted the attention of, a, of the French artists around 1855 because it had been used as packing material in a wooden crate containing porcelain. Much the same way pages from a magazine or newspaper would be used for packing material today in the United States. And on the right, this famous poster by Milton Glaser of Bob Dylan uh, has an anecdote that goes along with it. A photographer who worked with, with Glazer once said that he had been on assignment to a tiny village of 100 people in the Amazon jungle and went into a little hut, and when his eyes adjusted to the dark, he saw this poster hanging on the wall. So communication, communicare, to make common. These artists who have turn their backs upon the, uh, the fashionable and uh, exciting world of the expensive galleries to work in the mass media, in the forms of art which do not yet get the recognition from universities, from uh, art history departments, are having an enormous impact on the way we see ourselves, the way we see the rest of the world. They're having an influence on political events. They're having an influence on children who are just learning how to read or other people who are semi-literate and whose visions of the world are largely shaped by the pictures they see around them. They help people of different countries get a sense of the cultures of people who speak different languages, a sense that can't be gotten by reading their words. I think that artists who are having this kind of power are ready for universities to finally give them some legitimacy and start teaching the history of these forms and to let the artists know what their traditions are to uh, re make the artists realize how important a contribution they're making really is. Thank you very much. <clears throat>